This program is brought to you by Pussy Magnets. Oh, hey! Welcome, 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 my lovely lumps. Or should I say lovely labs? I don't know, they're both good. (laughs) I'm so thrilled to have you here in the Labia Lounge to yarn about all things sexuality, womanhood, holistic health, and everything in between. Your legs. (laughs) Oh, cringe. I couldn't help myself. Anyway, I am your host, Freya Graff, and I am a holistic sex coach and educator and yoni mapping therapist. So basically, I make my living massaging vaginas and teaching people about sex. Yeah, pretty cool. (laughs) So as you can imagine, we are going to have vag loads of real chats with real people about real shit. So buckle up, you're about to receive the sex ed that you'd never had and have a bloody good laugh while you're at it. Before we get stuck in though, I would like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this podcast, the Manang people. It's an absolute privilege to be living and creating dope podcast content on Noongar country and I pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, if y'all are ready, let's flap and do this. Oh, is there such thing as having too many vagina jokes in the one intro? Whatever. I'm leaving it in. It's my podcast. Don't panic, you're not broken. Your sex education was a piece of shit. Get your flaps out and pull up the couch. It's the Labia Lounge. What's happening, my little labial ledge booze? Ooh, ledge booze. That just came out. Jesus, it's getting, um... I'm really stretching it with the ledge, ledge hammer, ledge boo, ledge bag um, each time. Anyway, so chuffed to have you here in the lounge with me, reclining on clit cushions and having real and raw combos because today I have a very special guest by the name of Joellen Notty to talk about depression, sex and relationships. And this is a topic really close to my heart and it's quite relevant to me and I'm guessing a lot of other people listening since the rates of mental health issues are so bloody high. So I'm really grateful and excited to be covering this super important topic on the potty today. Um, so Joe Allen, he's the 210 about this wonderful woman. I don't know, even know what 210 means. I actually, I think I've just seen it in movies. Anyway, here's the sitch. Joellen Notti is a writer, speaker, sex educator, and mental health advocate whose work explores the impact of depression on relationships. Since 2012, she has written about sex, mental health, and how none of us are broken on her award-winning site, The Redhead Bedhead. Love that name. Joellen is the author of The Monster Under the Bed, Sex, Depression, and the Conversations We Aren't Having, as well as another amazing book that's coming out in spring 2023 called In It Together, Navigating Depression with Partners, Friends, and Family. Holy shit, I'm going to just pre-order the fuck out of that book. That sounds incredible. I just love, you know, the conversations we aren't having as well with The Monster Under the Bed, your existing book. Like that is what I'm all about, having the conversations that we're not having. I just think that's so powerful and I'm really thrilled to be sharing this virtual couch space with you here in the lounge. Welcome. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) 
So I'm pretty pumped. Um, you know, here I have a person who talks about two very stigmatized topics that society labels as off limits usually, you know, in terms of like casual conversation, sex and mental illness. And you not only talk about both these things with such realness and relatability, which is why I asked you on the potty, but you also talk about the intersection of the two, which is pretty fucking cool. And I think really important to be talking about. So in this epi, I want to dive into topics like how depression affects libido. It's a big one. Sex and relationships as well, obviously. How and when to tell a potential partner about your mental health and how to navigate it all with, you know, with an existing partner, whether it be you or your partner or both of you who are struggling with mental health challenges. Um, So there's some pretty big topics here. I I feel like it'll be quite relatable to a lot of people because who hasn't experienced, you know, either depression or some form of mental health challenge in their life? I feel like you'd be like a unicorn if you hadn't. Um, (laughs) But first, I'd love to hear a bit about your background and how you wound up doing this work, if you don't mind just sharing a bit about your personal and professional journey. So I became a sex writer uh, after a divorce and my father died and all this stuff happened in the same year and it was a big, huge mess. And it made me realize I wanted to figure out kind of something better to do with my life. I was... uh, I was working as a yoga and fitness instructor because I feel like that's what directionless women did in the mid 2000s. <laughs> and I uh, my right. I, so I got this idea and I started this site. I did this all in like 48 hours. I got the idea and bought a domain and built a site and started talking about sex. And even though I liked to believe that depression was in my past and now I was going to have this fun, sexy future. Uh, depression did not agree with me and it came back. And so navigating that and taking medications and having sexual side effects and all that stuff was Mm. stuff I wrote about. Mm. And that's when people started kind of reaching out to me. It's when I realized people besides my mom were reading and that kind of gave me the (laughs) idea to focus on that topic and ask people questions and do surveys. And that's what led to my book. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, I can imagine so many people would have been reading your writing and just going, oh, thank God, like she gets it. Someone is kind of describing my experience, you know, so that's really amazing. Did you get quite a lot of feedback from people just saying like, oh my God, thank you? Yes, but what I always say was noteworthy about it was I got a lot of like emails and DMs and like private messages. I didn't get any, like there was nobody like on Twitter saying it in front of people or using Mm. the comment field on my website. It was all uh, to me very indicative of what we were all struggling with, which was we all really wanted to talk about it, but felt like we couldn't do it like in front of people. Mm, Totally, totally. I, I like sometimes get messages from people saying like, oh my gosh, this post you did really touched me or like really helped me or your account is, is you know, such a game changer for me. But I'm a, I'm a bit too like, I guess, shy or self-conscious to actually like press that love heart button. And I actually like just want you to know that I'm following and I'm reading everything you write and I love it and I appreciate it, but I'm too scared to to press like or to share it or comment because you know, it's this delicate topic that people are really afraid of speaking about openly. And that's so, you know, that's so sad, but I guess that's exactly why, you know, we're in the job and there needs to be practitioners like us who are having the conversations and just giving other people permission to, to have the conversations to themselves. Mm. 
So speaking of, yeah, conversations that I've had quite, quite a lot and kind of gone to and fro with, with a lot of people, especially I feel like in the personal development space, there's, um, there's this real, I guess it's like this old cliche of like, how can you expect someone to love you when you can't even love yourself, you know? And I love, I love this quote from your book. It goes, telling people that they have to love themselves before they can love someone else or that they have to get themselves together first blames them for their loneliness. And I was like, oh my God, that's so refreshing because like, you know, I think there is obviously some truth or like sometimes there's some truth in, you know, in some situations around, yeah, kind of getting, getting a bit of self-work done and finding a bit of inner, inner love or self-esteem or whatever before you like find yourself in a relationship. Um, but I just feel like that whole, like, you know, can't, can't love someone else if you don't love yourself, like got to get your shit together. You know, it just really lacks nuance and compassion. Um, and I found it like so unhelpful for me when I was single and I was dying to love and be loved in a committed relationship. And I was just feeling like I hadn't done enough work or managed to resolve all my mental health stuff fully on my own. And therefore I wasn't ready or I hadn't earned the love that I was yearning for. And it was just yet another reason to beat myself up or not feel worthy or good enough. And then of course, you know, when you do meet someone who's kind of keen to do this thing with you, you're already kind of feeling guilty or worried about how much baggage you're bringing into the relationship. So, and that was my experience, you know, I'm very much in the kind of like personal development worlds where they, there's a lot of that, like work on your shit stuff. So obviously I felt that even more keenly because I'm quite, you know, I reflect on I'm very like self-reflective and self-aware. So I was always kind of like, oh my God, but like, have I properly gotten to the point where I can offer enough in a relationship and have I really, you know, so I was like always thinking about that, but I just found it so unhelpful actually. So I'd love, yeah, I'd love you to speak a little bit on this, like that quote from your book um, and just talk a bit on that for us. So that quote is part of um, uh, uh, like a kind of genre of things I like to address in my work that is like things that started out from a good place and started with like a kernel of truth mm. that was, you know, real and powerful, but got kind of diluted and bastardized along the way. And so what I think started out as like, you know, if you're just constantly treating yourself like shit and not taking care of yourself and, and being destructive and whatever, you shouldn't get into a relationship, which is actually, I think, pretty decent advice turned into this thing where it was like, you know, the price of admission for love Mm. is that you be this completely realized person who loves themselves. And I remember being in my early twenties and a therapist telling me that (laughs) and me thinking it sounded so unfair that I, who was miserable and all low self-esteem and whatever, like, um, if I looked at somebody who loved themselves, they already seem to have so much happiness and joy and and all this stuff. And you're telling me now that they get love and I don't because (laughs) I don't love myself. I'm trying to figure out like, how do I convince people I love myself because I'm certainly not going to get there. And I, I think it's this, like this gatekeeping of things that's not helpful because, oh, because there's nuance to it and people are complicated and you're going to go through moments where you think you're amazing and moments when you think you're terrible and Mm -hmm. you're worthy of love in all of those moments. Mm, 
Yeah, absolutely. That's really beautiful. I think it's really important to acknowledge the nuance. And I feel like a lot of these, uh, are these like, I don't know what you'd even call them. They're just a bit a bit kind of catchphrasy or cliche now, but they're very, um, they're kind of peddled out all the time and they've become, yeah, like I can't even count the amount of times I've heard someone say like that exact, like, you know, well, you've got to love yourself before someone else is going to love you. Like, how can you expect to attract someone in when you're just, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's, yeah, it's really become unhelpful I think it's sort of shamey and judgy and it's like well I already feel like shit so like thanks so much that's really helpful (laughs) um and And even like now I I share like when I share that quote on because on Instagram I share like the quotes from my books and stuff I will get like 99% of people are like oh thank god I needed to hear that but there's always that 1% that's like, yeah, but I really do believe if you don't love yourself, you're just going to be unhealthy. And and, I, and like I said, there's nuance to it. Yeah. And you do need to look at like, am I healthy to be in a relationship? But also there's no, I don't know, there's no universal bar for like having it together and loving yourself yeah. enough. Yeah, exactly. It's like everyone is so different and our situations are so different. And yeah, it's impossible to just like blanket rule that shit. And I think like you're really right in, you know, saying, well, sometimes we might think we're shit hot and we're having a sick time. And we're just like, I'm so, you know, I'm on top of it. I'm feeling great. I'm feeling really juiced up and in love with myself for like, I don't know, an hour, five minutes, maybe even a couple of days if you're lucky. Maybe you're going through like a patch where you're just like totally like lapping up all the sunshine in summer and and having a wonderful time, feeling really good. And then, you know, other times in the year, I mean, this is definitely the case for me. Sometimes I'm feeling amazing and great and I'm like, everything's actually going to be okay, you know? And those times kind of get me through the other times when it is not the case. And also like when someone falls in love with you, they're falling in love with like, I mean, ideally they're falling in love with every facet of you, every layer, every version. You can't just be putting your best foot forward and like only showing them the like fair weather, you know, sunny side of you all the time. That's just so toxic to feel as though you have to, you know, only be that really positive, sunny version of yourself in order to receive love. Because, you know, in a, like in my relationship, it's so incredible that like my partner has seen me in all of the different times and he loves me no matter what. But then when I'm in the shitty times and I don't have any love for myself, he has enough for both of us and then vice versa. You know, it's this beautiful, like, balance that we manage to find um, because it's not as simple as like, oh, well, you don't love yourself all the time. You're not like totally on top of your shit. So therefore you're going to be like worthless and toxic in a relationship. It's like, no, 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 that's not really how it works. Hey, babe towns. So sorry to interrupt, but I simply had to pop my head into the lounge here and mention another virtual lounge that you've seriously got to get around. It's the Labia Lounge Facebook group that I've created for listeners of the potty to mingle in. And there you'll find extra bits and bobs like freebies or discounts for offerings from guests who've been interviewed on the podcast, inspiring and valuable content, thought-provoking conversations, and just general support from a community of labial legends. It's a safe, non-judgmental space where you can go to ask the questions 
questions that you can't ask anywhere else, seek advice or solidarity from other like-minded folk, tell stories that are usually too much for the average conversation, and also play a role in shaping the podcast with your input. So through this group, you can submit stories that you'd like me to read out for the TMI, Sand in My Clam, and Get Pregnant and Die segments. Um, and as well, you know, you can send in questions or topics that you would like covered on the potty. I'm always open to suggestions and input and you never know, you might hear your story on an episode. So my vision for the group is that it becomes a really rewarding, supportive, educational and hilarious resource for you to access and be a part of. So head over to the link in the show notes or just search up the Labia Lounge group on the old facey and I hope I see you in there. And now back to the episode. Yes, and I, I, um, I mean, I'm non-monogamous, right? So I have been in a lot of spaces where that stuff has been totally abused. To mm-hmm. like, if we're a non-monogamous couple and you feel uncomfortable with a new relationship I've started, well, that's just you know your low self-esteem, and you need to work mm-hmm. on that. As opposed to you know, there's room for us to talk about these things, and I think, oh God, any in the right hands becomes toxic. And I've seen so much misuse of the advice to, you know, take care of yourself and love yourself and how it gets twisted into, you know, it's okay for me to mistreat you because, you know, you're not together enough or whatever. Mm, You're mistreating yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yuck. I've seen a lot of that. Um, I sort of did Maybe maybe five or so years in in a non-monogamous relate like I guess all of my relationships were quite non-monogamous. Did the poly thing for a while, mostly just an open relationship with like one primary partner, but mm-hmm. definitely came across some seriously fucking poor and toxic behavior in those circles because it's yeah it's it kind of it's quite there's a lot of um areas that it can sneak in and that it can be used. Um, I, so, I mean, every relationship, monogamous or not, there, there can be this stuff, I suppose. But, yeah, I definitely relate to that. Um, and I also absolutely loved reading something that you wrote about how, like, mm, how people often suggest solutions to your depression. And this is like they suggest solutions to like all your fucking problems. It's like seriously, butt out. I know they're just trying to help, but it's infuriating. And then they might be like, oh, oh, okay, you're depressed. Like, have you tried this vitamin? What about exercise? Are you meditating? Sugar-free diet, yoga, like all of these things that, you know, and then, and then when, you know, they don't work, they assume that you're doing them wrong. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I really agree that sometimes while these things can be helpful and of course like I do try to do a lot of them and I I find a lot of them sometimes can help my just general and overall health you know like the answer's never this straightforward and instead of feeling better it's just like more things on your to-do list while also dealing with depression which is just extra hard because you know your motivation and energy for doing anything is so low let alone you know also juicing a bunch of celery and doing daily yoga and cardio and remembering to take a million supplements and amino acids multiple times a day (laughs) that was my experience you know it's just never as simple as like oh oh have you been meditating every day oh well you know there's your problem like maybe start doing that and it's like when someone suggests something for my mood or my gut health which is another thing I've had um, a lot of issues with over the years 
I'm literally never like, oh yeah, wow, I hadn't thought of that. I'll give it a go. That sounds so promising. Thank you, you know? Um, So instead of trying to like fix things or suggest solutions that sometimes can just like actually show a bit of judgment or misunderstanding and make us feel worse and more like sort of disconnected from you, what can people do to like support someone when they are struggling with depression, if it's a friend or a loved one? You know, if you're sitting there and you're really dying to give that piece of advice, my, my, my advice in that case is always to ask people if they're looking for suggestions, mm. but also be aware that so many of us have tried all the things we've tried. Like if it's your first thought, we've been there already yeah. because, you know, everybody tells us to do yoga and to take this vitamin and to go to CrossFit and to <laughs> like all be have, practice gratitude. Uh, for a long time, I was, I had a lot of guilt because I felt like I wasn't being, you know, gratitude enough. And that mm-hmm. was why I had to press it, the whole thing. But also, you know, I think communicating to the people you care about that whatever it is they think will make them feel good, you're on board to help them with it if they want that or need that, right? Mm. So for me, it's, uh, I know when I'm like, when I'm feeling better physically, mentally, the whole thing, I, I'm walking a lot typically. Mm-hmm. It's just something that works really well for me. And my partner has in the past, when I'm really kind of down in it, said to me, well, okay, you know, will you feel better if you go walking? Like, and if so, do you want me to come with you? And you know, mm. we'll get coffee and we'll make it into a thing. And and so it's always this like no pressure way that he shows up to help me do the thing that feels like it will work for me, as opposed to saying like, well, you should be doing this thing. And then obviously you'd feel better mm. because for a lot of us, we've tried that thing and it hasn't worked. And the more people come at us with it, it feels like accusatory and mm. like we maybe didn't really try the thing. Totally. So I think give people the space to feel out what feels like it would be good for them and then see if they want or need you there to support that. Mm. And this is an important one. If you don't like or agree with or whatever the thing that they've found maybe, maybe shush, like maybe now's not the time. Um, I talk about in the book, actually, no, I think this story's in my new book, but there's, I dated someone once who uh, hated acupuncture. He'd read an article once that said acupuncture was a sham and, you know, everybody who did it was placebo effect and, and they were being <laughs> duped and whatever. I have had uh, multiple spinal injuries in addition to the depression. And there've been multiple times where acupuncture has really helped me Mm. and he could not handle that. He said, you know, I read this article and I didn't immediately say, Oh, well, that's it. I'm never going to acupuncture again. And it, we had this back and forth that went on for way too long because he couldn't just allow it to be something that I felt worked for me. He needed to be right. (laughs) Don't be that person. (laughs) Don't be that person. Totally. I, I feel like I've, um, I've kind of been on both ends in relationships with this stuff. And personally, I struggle when 
I feel as though the person's doing stuff that they think helps, or at least it's their coping mechanism that is actually super self-destructive, like drinking or drugs or, um, you know, I mean, there's a, it's really hard when you're like seeing someone you love and they're doing these, you know, maybe they're playing lots of video games. Maybe they're like on social media heaps and it's like all that they can do. But at the same time, you're like, oh my God, that's like, I almost know for a fact that that's making it worse. In that case, like, what do you do? You know, is it just like totally support them and, and be there for them, have their back with whatever they feel like is helping in the moment. And then eventually there'll be enough like trust and rapport that you can suggest more healthy things or like, what do you, what do you think in that case? So I, I do think that that actually is, um, an interesting thing to think about because whenever I make this argument, I'm talking about like, don't pick on your partner because they like yoga. Like, and (laughs) I forget that. Um, I always say like the line between self-care and self-harm is really thin and I like to walk it really hard. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) I I, I just do. And, um, my partner, a thing we had that was kind of difficult was, uh, the coping mechanism I end up using that is actually ends up being kind of like self-harm for me is, is overeating. I will yeah. eat way too much and I will eat a lot of crap. and all that. But he also loves food and like never saw a cream sauce. He didn't want to eat. And like, and so <laughs> for him at the beginning of those periods, he'll be like, great. And he'll be making things and whatever. But eventually he's said to me like, okay, you know, let's have some dinner, but then do you maybe want to go somewhere else? Like, do you feel like maybe the food isn't helping? And, and he always frames it in this really helpful way where it's like, listen, it's fine wherever you're at, but do you maybe want to talk about whether this isn't helping? Mm. And it gives me the space to say, you know what? I recognize it isn't helping, (laughs) but tonight I want to do it anyway. Or, you know, yeah, it actually isn't helping and that's been bothering me, but I didn't know what to do. Mm. And so I think it's important to give people the space to maneuver in these Mm. conversations. A lot of times conversations can make you feel backed into a corner. Mm. And when it's more open-ended and more, you know, is it possible that this is what's going on? And if so, do you want to talk about that? Mm. People have options. Yeah, that's so beautiful because it can just turn into a bit of bit of an attack or a bit of, yeah, you kind of feel like you've got nowhere left to go and they're accusing you or they're like criticizing or judging you. And you kind of know, you're like, I know I'm fucking binge eating right now. I know this isn't good for me, but like, don't come at me with it, you know? You'd, so that's so beautiful. Like I can, I can really imagine like, you know, the way your partner frames it and, and comes to you with that is just like so gentle and so loving and like, an invitation rather than an accusation or like, you know, a statement. It's more like, Hey, I've noticed this thing. Like, would you like to talk about it? Like, do you, would you like some support? Like maybe we can have that second serve of dessert and then we could go for a little walk together after dinner, (laughs) you know, because food is definitely my coping mechanism as well. So (laughs) I relate to that. Um, Yeah. Wow. I'm really loving this. I think it's so, yeah, it's so refreshing to be having these conversations. And, um, and yeah, I have, I have a whole lot. I want to kind of get into more of like how depression affects sex and vice versa. First though, we're going to do this segment, get pregnant and die. 
Don't have sex. Because you will get pregnant. And stop. 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 Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have, don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise? So I was wondering if you had a story about how your sex education failed you, maybe something that you would have preferred to have been taught about, you know, any kind of little anecdote or story from when you were kind of getting your sex education. So uh, I went to Catholic school for 12 years and looking back, it actually could have been a lot worse. Like I remember in high school, we got this like multi-page handout that detailed different birth control methods. I don't remember the conversation hmm. about it, but I, looking back, I'm like, oh, that's cool that we had that. Mm, but Catholic for school. Me, yeah, right? Mm. That was how I learned what a cervical cap was. Um, <laughs> but for me, it was kind of this overarching thing. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I kind of came of age in the 90s and then what attitudes were like then. And Mm. like I said, I'm non-monogamous. And I think that's been kind of my inclination for my whole life, Mm. but I didn't know that. And I thought, you know, you you get a boyfriend and then you can have sex. And if you have sex outside of that, you know, this is my boyfriend relationship, then you're a slut and that's bad. Mm. And so I put off, I didn't have sex until I was like 22, because I never had a boyfriend because I'm not really into like my part, even now my partners all live hundreds of miles away from me because I like space. Mm. And it took until I was 22 for me to be like, well, this is dumb because at this point I'm turning (laughs) down sex with people because I haven't had sex and that's stupid. (sighs) And, um, and it was all in service of not having people think I was a slut, which Like, what a waste of energy. Good Lord. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's a good one. Gosh, 22, you poor love. Your pussy would have been just like, come on. <laughs> Honestly, it was if it was like, like an appendix. It was like an extraneous portion of my body that wasn't being used for anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Awesome. Wow. Well, thank you for that share. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, the slut shaming thing, that was bad. And also like where I thought you were going to go with that is like, yeah, wouldn't it have been great if they had kind of given us a bit of education about non-monogamy and the different options and different dynamics that you can relate in and, you know, be sexually active in. And oh, I mean, that's like so far, so far off happening. We can't even get like regular old sex education, you know, right at the moment. But I just feel like I, when I discovered that you could do the non-monogamy thing you know I probably read like sex at dawn and the ethical slide or whatever and then just like did it so badly (laughs) just we're all out there hurting and traumatizing each other and doing whatever the fuck we wanted and thinking we're super woke and like conscious and monogamous people were like idiots that like just hadn't figured out that they could have their cake and eat it too like I was such a little dickhead um but yeah, I, I was like, oh, well, monogamy is not natural. We're not designed to be monogamous. It's not how we're wired. That makes so much sense why I've cheated on all my boyfriends. Like, oh my God, I'm just going to do this, do this like poly thing. Woo! Um, and, you know, it was, it was like pretty disastrous at times. Um, I learned a lot through that sort of five-year period. Anyway, that's not the topic of this episode. I, I might do an episode about that. That would be fab. But um, 
Now I want to talk about sex and depression. So like how one affects the other, um, some of the more common challenges those with depression face in the bedroom. My mind immediately goes to, you know, a big one that like the main one that I'm aware of, which is that depression lowers your libido and antidepressant medication also lowers your libido. So maybe we can start there, but I'd love to hear what some of the less obvious challenges are too, if you wouldn't mind going into that. Absolutely. And there's a great story in here because I started my research from the, the position of um, depression makes people not want to have sex. And so there was no space in the initial survey I, I sent out for people who were having the opposite or even a neutral experience. Mm. So when we talk about the, the impact of depression and the impact of its treatment on our sex lives, and they can be different, right? So the depression can affect you one way, but maybe the medication is different. Um, What I found out was that a bunch of people actually were having more sex when they were depressed. Mm. And the reasons varied. Some of it was um, a certain medication for some people makes them like puts their libido through the roof. Um, In other cases, it was a self-soothing thing. In other Mm. times, it was a self-harm thing. Like there were all of these reasons that people were having more sex when they were depressed. Um, Then, so I always say with the the impact of depression, treatment, our sexuality, there's the mental things, right? The things about your feelings about sex. And so that's the low libido, high libido, more sex, less sex, whatever, then there's the things that are like actual physical effects, right? And these are a lot of times with the antidepressants. It's um, anorgasmia, um, uh, decreased lubrication, erectile dysfunction. Um, I'm missing, oh, my favorite one, <sighs> strange orgasms. Strange. This came up in my yeah oh. <laughs> i always say like they're recent they're like they're orgasms jim but not as we know them like um somebody described it in the survey as um like when you're driving a stick shift car and you're like not quite in the right gear he's like the thing is happening but it's like not quite what you're expecting to have happen and it's not really satisfying and wow. so that was an experience people had um another one was what they call genital numbness which mm. isn't um not like when your foot falls asleep, right? It's more like suddenly, you know, if you have a favorite vibrator and that vibrator always worked for you, suddenly it's just not enough. It doesn't get to it. You've got way less sensation happening. And, uh, okay. So you've got your physical things, you've got your feeling things, and the way you come at addressing those is going to be different, right? Because, the way you address, like, I just don't want to have sex with a partner can kind of make or break your relationship. Mm. And so it's important to understand that. That really actually changed the whole focus of The Monster Under the Bed. It initially was going to be a book that just listed, like, sexual side effects and the numbers of the people having them and, and all that stuff. And based on what people told me, it turned into a book that talked a lot about how you have a supportive, healthy relationship where people still want to have sex with each other and don't just resent each other. Mm. And I think that's such an important piece when you look at the way depression impacts our sex lives, because I think 
people think depression kills relationships. And I think that the fact that we don't know how to handle depression makes us mm. resent each other. And that's what kills our relationships. Mm. Yeah. Which I know I've, I've gone a far way off from like the sex things that happen, <laughs> but that was kind of the journey of monster all in you know, two minutes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Such, such like valuable discoveries and things to be like, I guess like illuminating for people because yeah, even I like just was like, oh, well, you know, sex, uh, libido is like affected by depression, but mostly I thought it was depressed by depression, but then it does make so much sense that it's not always that it lowers libido. Sometimes your libido can just kind of go a bit haywire in either direction um, for all different reasons. Like, yeah, really interesting that you're saying like sometimes having more sex was a self-destructive thing, um, whereas sometimes it was like a self-soothing, like kind of comfort-seeking uh, thing. And yeah, it is It is cool because like there's never like one size fits all. Obviously, everyone's affected differently and everyone's sort of experience of depression is slightly different as well so yeah um and like sort of further on in the epi I want to I want to go deeper into that and and sort of talk about some practical tips about how to like navigate it you know in relationships and um and you know work on things like strange orgasms and your libido um Excuse this unseemly interruption, my darlings. I must ask a wee little favor of you. I'm shamelessly seeking reviews and five-star ratings for the potty because, as I'm sure you've noticed by now, it's pretty fab, and the more people who get to hear it, the more people it can help. Reviews and ratings make it more likely to get recognized by the algorithmic gods and suggested to other listeners to check out. Plus, they make me feel pretty good and appreciated as I continue to pour my heart and soul into creating this baby for you. Now, I promise I don't maz over them or anything like that. I mostly just read them out to Locke with a big grin on my face and he says something like, see, you're killing it. Proud of you, babe. And then I tuck it away for a rainy day when I'm filled with self-doubt and existential dread about being self-employed. So, you know, doing this really does make a difference and is an easy little act of support that you can take in just a minute or two by either going to Spotify and leaving five stars for the show or writing a written review and leaving five stars over on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're a real overachiever, you could do both. Well, now that would be kind of crazy. Crazy awesome, obviously. Like that would be super ideal. Would love that. If you're writing a review though, just be sure to only use G-rated words because despite the fact that this is a podcast about sexuality and all that good stuff, the platforms censor words like sex and won't actually show your review lame. Anyway, oh, 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 you're going to do it right now while I wait? Oh, yeah. No, no. Awesome. Great. That's like, yeah, great idea. May as well just like quickly click that five-star button before we get on with it and, you know, forget or whatever. I mean, life just kind of gets in the way sometimes. So, I totally agree. It would be best to just do it now while we're talking about it, you know, while, while we're on the topic. Totally, totally, totally. Yep. Oh, Oh, I can feel those five-star reviews rolling in. Mm, fuck yeah. All right, all right. Well, thank you much, Lee. You're a total gem, and I'll let you get back to the episode now. 
Love ya. I, I had like a little, a slight detour, I guess. Um, and it's more because I had a personal experience with this that I'm curious to know what you think, but I want to talk about disclosure. Um, you know, like when you tell a partner that you have mental health stuff going on and like, I guess like a little bit of, um, background. Like I remember a time in my early twenties when I was dating, um, I was dating this guy, I was getting kind of serious um, and I totally didn't tell him that I had depression for ages and I was really afraid of scaring him off um, because of the stigma around depression but also because I knew he had some pretty big like judgments and fears around mental health stuff because of his parents Um, and like back then I found it really helpful and validating to have a label for it and identify with like having clinical depression because it made me, I mean, it made so much sense of my experience and how I'd felt for so many years of my life. And, you know, I remember my first psychologist when I was like 19 or something gave me a book about depression and I was able to recognize my own experience in everything I was reading. And I was like, oh, thank God, there's an explainable reason that I am the way I am, you know? Um, And like these days, um, you know, in my thirties, like I, I've gone on a huge journey with it and I don't, for me personally, I don't find it that helpful anymore to identify with like having depression or being depressed. And, you know, like I'm just doing a hell of a lot better than I was back then. Um, I don't take medication anymore and I'm, you know, just in a different place. Um, so, so yeah, I'm not like battling with it daily. Like I had for so many years when I was younger, but I still go through periods of like real, real struggle with my mental health and, you know, I feel as though like my brain is just wired in a way after so many years of that sort of chemical um, like addiction to the the neural pathways that just keep creating this, this mindset. Um, you know, it just my brain tries its hardest to be miserable sometimes and, you know, do the whole glass half empty thing. And I don't find it as natural and as easy as a lot of people I know, my partner included, who's just like a fucking ray of sunshine, like literally all the time. Um, I, I don't find it as easy just to like be existing in this like default state of happiness and gratitude and trust in the universe and excitement for life. Like that's, that's awesome. And I wish, <laughs> but that's like not, it's not me. And I would beat myself up so much because I just couldn't kind of get there. But now I have like a more sustainable way of kind of living with, you know, mental health peaks and troughs. Anyway, that was like a little um detour, but I, yeah, I want to know like at what point and how do you go about telling a new partner about your depression? So funny story, uh, I kind of didn't realize this until about a year after the book came out when I was doing an interview about it, but the very first like seed that was planted for this book and this work and all of this to happen was um, I had a one night stand with a guy who said to me, you know, as we were starting to make out, he said, I want you to know I'm on antidepressants and sometimes things don't work, you know, sometimes I can't Mm. have an erection or I I won't orgasm or whatever that has nothing to do with you. And, and, you know, I'm into this and, and, Mm. you know, whatever. And at the time I thought that's really cool. Mm. God, I wish like everybody was this open about this. And and that's kind of what seared what I do. Um, My belief 
is that you tell people when you're comfortable and when it's relevant, right? So the ways it comes up might vary. You might, you know, be sleeping with somebody and want to say, okay, because of my medication, this is what I'm experiencing. Or you might not have that experience. And so a little further down the road, you might say to somebody, so I have, I have a history with depression and, you know, this Mm -hmm. is how I'm doing now, but just so you know, it's a thing. I do think if it's, um, I don't know. I just think if you're on a date with somebody and they tell you they have asthma or like diabetes or something, you just, you know, say, okay, and go back to your appetizer. But like with mental health stuff, we're so, I don't know, on edge, especially with depression, people sometimes act like you're going to start crying or like (laughs) they have to go on suicide watch with you. And I think, you know, you feel out who is safe to disclose things to. And honestly, if you're, you know, having a friend with benefits thing with somebody who's kind of douchey and you think they'll be a jerk about it, I support you in not telling them because they don't need to know and it's not relevant. Mm. So for me, it's when you feel safe, when you feel comfortable and when it's relevant to the relationship. Mm, yeah great answer that makes so much sense I feel like it's um you know it's generally something you can feel out pretty intuitively back when I was young I was very like yeah I hadn't sort of got a grasp on it all yet but you know nowadays it's like well you know if it comes up if something sort of arises where it becomes relevant um, to talk about once you feel safe and, and comfortable with someone and you have developed like enough rapport and trust then you know obviously that's like the perfect sort of circumstance to talk about it but yeah it definitely wasn't like advertising it to like all my sort of casual flings and and whatnot so yeah that's really great thank you um so i'd love to do the segment tmi we love it do you have a tmi story for us about something that usually wouldn't be i mean you kind of deal in tmi like your main things like sex and mental health are <laughs> basically say. yeah that's you know your book is like the conversations we're not having so i feel like you've got the goods but um how do you choose one when you've got so many um now's your opportunity yeah <laughs> This is, it's weird. This is a thing I've been thinking about recently because I feel like um, so many people whose bodies came equipped with penises have a lot of anxiety about the size of their penis, the shape of their penis, the, the, like whether their penis is good enough. Mm. And it's made me think about how the worst sex of my life, there's two instances, and it was with the person who had the largest penis I've ever seen and the person who had the smallest penis I've ever seen. And it was the exact same reason the sex was bad. It was that it had literally nothing to do with what their penis looked like or felt like or was shaped like or whatever. And it had everything to do with them being selfish in bed. Uh... And so I guess my TMI is I have hooked up with somebody with like a legit porn penis and somebody with what I think probably qualified as a micro penis. And I'm here to tell you that those like what their penises were did not affect the sex, who they were and how they acted in bed made it the worst sex I've ever had. Mm, Yeah. Love that. It's so true. Oh my God. I've definitely fucked some porn dicks. (laughs) 
like we I was I was banging this dude before I met my current partner um that me and my housemates like sort of nicknamed moco for monster cock because it was like actually ridiculous I was just like oh my god it's it's too much um and I feel I feel like because they're so well endowed and you know, they have that to fall back on. I've heard this from lots of people. Like often they don't kind of learn to be generous lovers because they're just like, well, I got a huge dick. So you're lucky to be fucking me anyway. <laughs> and, um, but uh, yeah, interesting. The sort of micro penis situation, like weird that he was a selfish lover. You'd think he'd be trying to kind of, you know, compensate, but maybe there was a lack of, a lack of um, confidence anyway. So it was just easier to sort of lie back and receive, but yeah, definitely you got to be, you got to be generous and like connected lover. Otherwise it's not that great for us, is it? Yeah. Mm. It really isn't. <laughs> Amazing. Actually, wait, hold on. Yeah. Can I give yes. you a little more TMI here? Um, please. <laughs> so, one of my ongoing partners who has been, you know, in my life for God, five, six years now also is, is a well-endowed person who is very generous in bed, but is also a healthcare provider. Mm. And what this means is that um, as I sometimes like to just like jump right to the intense boning and skip all of the steps leading up to it, <laughs> uh, we have sex injured me a number of times. <laughs> which have always resulted in him like like it like I'm up in the stirrups and him like with a flashlight being like, okay, so there's an abrasion and and <laughs> and it goes from like super hot to really medical really quickly. <laughs> oh my god, wow. I mean at least he's equipped with the um the sort of skills and medical knowledge to to sort you out and patch you up after his it's dick's lovely. injured you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, babe! You just got to get around some foreplay. We can't have abrasions in your vag. <laughs> <laughs> that was fabulous. I'm glad you added that little one in. Um, yeah, sex injuries are a yeah. thing, definitely. With like big old dicks and um, not a lot of warm up. It's happens. I mean, vaginas are fucking strong, but they're also quite delicate. And yeah, oof, ouch. <laughs> So now after all that excitement, I'm really keen to hear some practical tips and advice about how to better navigate depression with a partner and like, you know, maybe when it comes to your sex life, libido, um, yeah, maybe like, can you first touch on some of the ways depression can impact relationships? I know you sort of went into it a little bit earlier, but I'd love to just like elaborate on, on how depression can impact, you know, the, the relationship. And then I guess we can move into like more like sex. I mean, flow with it, do it, do your thing, do your thing. (laughs) So, okay. So I think the, the biggest problem that hinders a lot of our relationships when depression gets involved is we get very like, um, there's your healthy partner on one side and your depressed partner with their depression on the other side. And we become like adversaries when what we really need to do is think of it as, you know, the two partners versus the depression. Mm. 
And I think part of why this happens is, you know, depression changes what we're interested in doing and how we show up in the world and all of these things. And one of the big things that changes is how we need to communicate. Mm. Um, I always say like depression is its own language. Mm. And if we don't learn how to communicate with the depressed person, we're all going to be frustrated and annoyed, but you know, it's not this huge difference, right? I talk a lot about something called spoon theory, um, which was created by a a woman who has lupus and Mm. she used it as a way she uses spoons to quantify the like physical, emotional, mental energy she has in a day and how much doing different things that like a healthy person doesn't have to worry about, you know, she might start the day with eight spoons, but for her showering takes four. And so half of her Mm. spoons are gone and she's not even out the door for the day. Right. And it's a great, um, it's one of the tools I tell people to use a, to kind of get the communication going, but B to kind of get an understanding of what depression is like, Uh, Because if you're on the outside and you've never dealt with it, you you don't understand. And it can feel like your partner's being argumentative and a jerk and and doesn't want to do fun things and whatever. Mm. But if you can kind of get on the same page and communicate about it, you'll feel less on the outside and more like you get what's happening. Mm. And I think another way that um, some of us stumble with this is uh, when it comes to socializing. Right. So we live in a world that thinks couples do everything together. And if, you know, one half of a famous couple is out on their own, the next morning, the Internet's all like they must be getting divorced. (laughs) But when we insist on doing that and one person is depressed, you enter this situation where almost always either the depressed person is miserable and doesn't want to be out and, and, you know, it sucks or everybody stays home and the healthy partner is like, like this sucks. I want to go do things. Mm. And so I talk to people a lot about thinking about like taking responsibility for our own social lives and communicating with each other. Like I would love for you to come to this thing tonight, but I get it if you don't want to. And, you know, I'll be thinking of you and kind of letting go of some of those ideas of being a couple is supposed to mean this. And, you know, going out on your own sometimes. Yeah, so important. Yeah. But the big thing really is remembering that it's never about you, right? Your your partner who has depression and doesn't want to have sex or doesn't want to go places or doesn't even want to talk about it, it's, n- it's not about you. They're not upset with you. They don't love you less. They don't, you know, think you suck it's their brain is beaten up on them. And Mm. this is just a symptom of it the same way, you know, if they had a stomach bug, then puking would be a symptom of that. And I think understanding that's a huge step because depression and the way it plays out can feel really hurtful to the people on the outside. Mm. Yeah. And when we don't have that firm grasp that like, this is the depression, this isn't my partner and, you know, their feelings about me, it can be hard and scary and frustrating. And then we resent each other and everything gets bad. Mm, Totally. It's so important to just, if you can, like, remember that you're on the same team and like really act from a place of like, we are on the same team. Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah. It's so tricky. What I've found that I've struggled with is feeling like a burden and feeling really bad, feeling like, you know, sometimes the dynamic kind of goes to the place where like they're almost a carer for periods of time. What, what do you do in that case? Yeah, I talk a lot in my book about what I call the broken and lucky relationship dynamic mm. where, you know, the person with depression is is inherently broken and they are so lucky that somebody would show up and love them at all. And it wreaks havoc on our relationships because, mm. you know, when you're feeling lucky, luck doesn't last, luck runs out, you might not be so lucky tomorrow, like what do you do with that? And how do you not resent somebody? And how do you not screw up your consent dynamics? Because if you're lucky they're there, do you have the right to say no? Do you like, there's all this stuff that Mm -hmm. can come kind of dynamic wise in our relationships that kind of will tear apart even a, a super healthy relationship if we don't keep an eye on it. And I think this comes back to that remembering that, the depression is like a separate thing. And it's so hard because so many of us with depression feel like burdens all the time. Mm. And I think for partners, it's important to be able to communicate, you know, I'm, you're not a burden. I'm showing up to support you in these ways. And when I can't do that, I need to go like get my own support. Um, I talk about something in the book called ring theory and um, it's this, this method of uh, providing support for everybody involved in uh, like a traumatic situation. And it works by envisioning everybody on concentric rings. And at the center is the person in this case who has depression, right? It might be somebody who's sick and whatever, And then, you know, the next ring out from them is their partner. And then the ring after that is their family. And the ring after that is friends. And the rule for it is that you only send comfort in towards the center. You never vent to the person in the center or anybody closer to the center than you. You just give them comfort. And then the people on the outer rings are there to handle the venting for the people on the inner rings. Mm. And that way, everybody has a support system kind of at all times. Mm. And that can help assuage some of that burden feeling and can also, you know, help prevent some of the resentment from feeling like, you know, I can't have feelings because my partner has depression, which Mm. I think is an issue that comes up a lot. Yeah, totally. Oh my God. Especially if there's already a little bit of that like rescuer dynamic where Mm -hmm. the partner is like, oh my God, I'm, I'm like basically coming in and I'm saving and rescuing this person. I'm caring for them. Like they're a victim of the depression and so they need me. And then obviously I put their needs before my own and then they just burn themselves out. There becomes a bit of resentment. Um, and I feel like, This is just an assumption based on, well, it's not, I I feel like it's probably quite accurate. You know how like men often don't 
they don't talk as much as women. They don't have like, you know, often they don't have friends where they get together over a, a cup of tea and like talk about all the ins and outs of the relationship, their mental health, how they're coping, blah, blah, blah. Like, whereas like women like me, I, I have so many friends that I talk to about literally fucking everything, you know, everything and anything. And I've got so much support through all of those social networks like the conversations I'm having just it just takes all of all of it out of my head and I get to like you know bounce off other people and and seek support and whatever in so many other places through my friendships but then I find like men will often not have access to that as much because you know their friendships maybe don't delve as deep they don't talk about the stuff that goes on in their relationship they've got like such a deep sense of of loyalty and not betraying you because the mental health stuff is so taboo and stigmatized that you know they're probably like oh well I, I, it's their business I don't want to tell my friends about it that's not fair and then all of a sudden they're just like totally on their own in their own little ring with no rings out outside them because they feel as though they can't talk about it because one it's like not their business it's your business um and also because they've, they've just got to like hold it all for you and it's also a little bit unusual or like less it's less of a done thing for a man to confide in friends and or other people to talk about um emotional issues and mental health issues so i feel like there's they're sort of a little bit less equipped sometimes to hold all that space but they do it sort of stoically anyway um but then obviously that's not a healthy, like poor them, you know, they don't have all of the support networks that, you know, we have access to just because like women just talk about shit with each other, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, so it's so funny cause I was, I was kind of giggling while you were talking because my, uh, one of my partners is like this big raging extrovert who's part of like 12 different communities and and has like all of these people and they're all familiar with my work mm. so it kind of frees him from both the not having anyone to talk to and worrying about exposing my stuff because True. Like, I overshare for a living <laughs> um but I think for you know there are a lot of people that like toxic masculinity is for real and it mm. hurts men yeah a lot because they feel like I can't talk. I can't, mm. you know, this isn't manly, whatever. I feel like if you're in that place and you feel like you don't have friends, you don't have family, you know, who you can have those conversations with, that is a great time to consider a therapist. Mm. Yeah. Because it is literally their job to not judge you for talking about <laughs> your partner or for talking about something that feels like, you know, you feel is you know, not masculine or, or whatever. Mm. Like, it's uh it's uh, this i feel like this phrase sounds so hokey these days but it's a safe space to yeah. to have those conversations if you feel like no one else in your life can give that to you mm. and uh these days like the pandemic has been amazing for uh making services available mm. so like you, there's an app where you could like pay and see a therapist a couple of times and so I, I just want people to know, like, there's never nobody to listen to you. There's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's weirdly kind of how I feel about sex. Like if you can't find someone to do it with you for free, there is probably someone who will <laughs> join you for money. Yeah. Um, but I guess my point is find an outlet 
however you can, because no matter what the world has told you is manly or masculine or whatever, you not only like need to talk, but you deserve to talk and to feel supported and to have a place to vent and to have that like rich, emotional, supportive life mm. that your partner might have. If your partner's me and they hide at home a lot, they might not have that, but you all deserve it. So yeah, and you know, feel free to DM me not to make me your sounding board because I can't, I I can't hold space for that many people, but to remind you that I said you deserve the support and you should get it. Yeah. Beautiful. Totally. It's so important. And I feel like, you know, if, if I know, you know, say I'm in a bit of a dark place and I know my partner's got at least, you know, a couple of friends or some people that he can go to and like confide in and talk about and kind of decompress. And also, you know, like, I mean, that makes me feel like less of a burden because I'm like, oh, well, he's sweet. He's supported. Mm -hmm. It's like not just a one-way street either. Like, you know, we kind of go between like sometimes I've got heaps to give and I got shitloads of spoons and I'm just so there for it. And we sort of naturally seem to like pick up the slack when one or the other of us really needs extra support, which works really nicely because then I feel like, oh, at least, you know, it's somewhat balanced. But, you know, even if that's not the case, it does make you feel like less of um a burden if you know that they're supported as well. So they're being kind of filled yeah. up and, and you know, um, they've got that safety net emotionally. Um, and then what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, my gosh, it's just left my head completely. Um, anyway, I'll just, like, jump onto the next thing. One thing I wanted to say was, like, mm-hmm. there's a fair bit of, well, something that bothers me anyway, is, like, this toxic positivity um it's just the last thing we want to fucking hear it just makes us feel even less seen or heard or understood and like way less likely to you know want to be um intimate or like connect with a partner sexually and yeah I I almost just get immediately like I'm allergic to it now I'm a bit like oh do not come at me with that you know um yeah, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that um, especially in this world where so many of us are on social media so much, um, there's just so much out there that sounds like a good positive thing, but eventually it just becomes like a new thing that you feel bad about. Like You feel bad because, you know, this meme told you mental illness is a choice or, you know, going outside is medicine or... Mm. Have the, or my personal favorite, just do it because you'll have sex and you remember you like sex and, and sex <sighs> is good. And none of that works. These are these are just ways to like make ourselves feel even worse. I'm all for you know neutrality, mm. not not super positive, not you know down in the dumps negative. Just you know sometimes things just are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I think it's a good place to sit, really. Um, you know, and then when it's authentic and you're feeling really positive about stuff, fabulous. But don't try and push it on someone else when they're obviously not feeling it. <laughs> um, exactly. It's um, the thing I say to people about when you're thinking, when you're approaching sex, when you're dealing with depression, actually fits in with this um, because you hear so much of that. Like, just do it because that's the way. And and you know, it, it's sex is good and whatever. But I always tell people to make conscious decisions about sex. 
stop and think and check in and say, you know, do, do I want to have sex today? How do I feel about sex today? And mm. if the answer is, you know, I could have sex, but God, I'd have to get off the couch and I'd have to take my pants off and it all sounds so overwhelming. <laughs> you can work with that. You and your partner can, you know, maybe you have sex on the couch. I don't know. You, you, that's something you can work with. But if you're feeling, oof, I can't even be bothered with sex. I don't want to think about it. Please don't touch me. That's something you can go to your partner and say, you know what, today sex is really not happening for me. And then you get to stay in the loop with each other and it normalizes the ups and downs mm. as opposed to putting you at that like diametrically opposed, I am down in the depths of no sex land mm. while people are telling you, like cheerleadering you to be positive about sex and life and whatever. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Good advice. Um, and I, I, I was wondering, like, because I feel as though there's always a gift or a silver lining in something. Like, are there any gifts in this that, like, people may not be aware of? You know, I feel like for me it's definitely made my communication and my sort of emotional uh, agility, really, really good. Like in relationships, you know, I can communicate sort of probably better than if I wasn't ever challenged with mental health stuff and never had to communicate about it. Um, yeah. What, what gifts do you come across and do you feel there are in like having mental health issues in relationships or just in general? I do think it, it makes you so good at communication just because like by necessity mm. and, you know, I'm, I'm not, a communication expert and I screw it up too, but because of the reality of my brain and my life and whatever, I, I am able to say, okay, I screwed that up. Let's, let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. And that's been a huge gift also. And it, I feel like this is something that's become something of a buzzword, but in this case, it really fits empathy. Mm-hmm. I'm much more able to look at somebody who's like being a jerk or, you know, looking mad in public and whatever and think, oh, oh, they might be going through something. I Mm. I don't know what's going on for them. You know, I should Mm. not make their life harder right now. And I think like as much as I would love to live my life without depression, I wouldn't want to give up the empathy and the willingness to understand where other people are coming from, because I think Mm. that has been the best thing I've gained from it. Yes, totally, totally. I um I have like a friend who I just feel like <laughs> comes out with stuff that's so infuriating sometimes just because he hasn't ever experienced it himself, you know, like he'll just say the most ridiculous shit and I love him in so many ways, but far out. He'll just say shit about like overweight people and how it's like they're like yeah it's just like I won't even oh it's I'm just like are you fucking kidding me right now like you just have no idea and he kind of also has it you know these like I don't know judgments or assumptions around people with depression and so often the overweight and the depression go hand in hand and I'm just like you just you just have no idea what's going on for people like you can't possibly understand like he has none of the empathy for these people because from the outside he's just like oh well they're obviously just fucking lazy and blah 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 and I'm like wow you just that is pretty repellent to me like someone with those those views because it's like 
yeah, just completely lacking empathy and, and compassion and understanding. So, and I don't think I would ever be that extreme, even if I had never felt depressed in my life, I would still fucking yeah. have empathy, I think, but you know, I wouldn't have as much of a, of a like sort of nuanced and embodied understanding, you know, like I, I often feel a bit, um, <clears throat> I feel sometimes a little bit like, oh, not isolated, not lonely, I guess just a bit misunderstood because like I was saying before, my partner is like, honestly, just such a weird, like a unicorn. He has, you know, pretty much never you know, had like mental health or depression issues or basically any, he's just, he's just sunshine. He's just like joy and gratitude and total trust in everything and people and has like just this outlook on life that I cannot relate to. And I wish I could, I would love it, but it's, it's so different to mine, which, you know, I've definitely had my fair share of like trauma and childhood stuff and um, you know, like narcissistic father and all of these things that basically make me like a bit cynical, a little bit like kind of glass half empty sometimes. Um, and so we're very, we're really on opposite ends of the spectrum. And sometimes when I'm like in my shit or I'm just feeling stuff, um, I just, no matter how like loving and caring and, you know, understanding he tries to be, he he can't fully like actually understand. He he can't understand because he just hasn't hasn't had that experience. And that's not his fault, but it is a little bit um yeah, a little bit lonely sometimes because I'm just like, oh bless. He's trying really hard, but he just doesn't get it. <laughs> um, I feel pretty bad about it, but I've noticed I um when I consider relationships, when I consider new people, I have a bit of a prejudice now. Um, towards people who like, you know, if, if they're the, the big happy ball of, you know, everybody's wonderful and, and we all hang out all the time and like all their parents and grandparents are still alive and, you know, they still have their childhood dog. And basically I, I'm, what I'm saying is I need people who have seen some shit yeah. because I feel like otherwise I just, I, I stop, like I start running out of patience mm-hmm. for their joy that's not right <laughs> yeah, but for that that feeling of like why yeah. don't you understand this my, yeah. my again my lovely partner he kind of was that person and then a couple of years ago his grandmother passed away and he went he went through his first ever like situational depressive mm. spell mm. and it was fascinating to like to watch him kind of, he would come to me and say, Oh, I think this is, this sounds like depression. And it, and you know, I don't want him to have to go through terrible things, but it also did kind of deepen our understanding of each other. Yeah. Cause it let me see that, you know what, he is susceptible to those things too. Mm. And life isn't always, you know, a parade for him, mm. but, and it made him say, this is what she feels sometimes. And, and he understands it better now. So yeah, that's my weird prejudice that's crept in. I, I need you to have had some trauma, I guess, yeah, before yeah. we date. <laughs> you gotta have a bit of darkness, a few few extra layers of nitty gritty sort of edges. You know, I I'm a, I'm so the same. Like I just find I almost feel like people who haven't had any trauma or just haven't really like come up against those hard edges in life yet 
feel a little bit two-dimensional or like a little bit naive or something. And it just like, I get impatient with it as well, um, which is like, you know, not, not the best. I'm not proud of that. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, well, I just feel like we can't understand each other on the same level or to the same depth. And, um, and I was a little bit worried about that when I first met my partner, cause I was like, Oh, what? Like, I don't understand how, like, you just, surely you're a little bit simple because you've got like the perfect nuclear family <laughs> and like, no one's like, you know, no one, nothing really traumatic has happened to you. And you just like actually love life and are always so positive. Like that's weird. <laughs> but, um, he's remarkably emotionally intelligent. Um, regardless and like yeah I think I mean he's actually had a really massive trauma like his best friend died of cancer when they were 13 but (sighs) he had such a like beautiful upbringing and solid family and support network and like no other kind of like co-factors that would contribute to mental health stuff he actually like dealt with that I mean seemingly in a really like healthy balanced way and has come out with like just as much zest for life and positivity and like trust in the universe as, as if it, you know, like it's, it's kind of wild. I'm, I'm fascinated by him anyway. I just think it's awesome um, to see Like he sort of sets an example for me, like how he can move through stuff. It's obviously totally unattainable for me because <laughs> oh, my brain just but doesn't good work. To it's like out there. It's good to know people can do that yeah. because I will tell you, this might be, you know, a depression on my brain, but like a, a thing I find is, you know, now that I've lost both of my parents, when people, friends or, or partners or whoever that I really care about when I look at them and they still have both their parents, I get worried for them because I'm like, oh no, you're going to have to go through this at some point yeah. and it's awful and I don't want that for you. And I, so it's nice to know that it is possible for some people to go through these things and, and maintain that, mm. that love of life and that love of yeah. people. And cause I, I really want, like as much as I sound like I wish trauma upon people, I really want everybody to be okay. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And it's so, it is, it's really heartening and nice to see that, you know, some people could move through things and come out the other side, like less fucking broken than I would. And, um, and that's yeah. nice. Like, <laughs> I feel like we balance each other out and it shows me what's possible and, and I can kind of take a leaf out of his book sometimes. And then also I feel like he's been learning a lot from being with someone like me, um, who sort of has a lot more ups and downs than, than him. So it is so interesting though, like what a, a stable childhood and uh, like, you know, a couple of supportive parents can do. <laughs> it just really sets you up with a beautiful foundation. Yeah. Uh, um. All right, so I would love to ask like one or two more questions before we wrap up. I know we're running out of time. I just, oh, I'm adoring this conversation. I'm really grateful to you for coming on the podcast and being so open about all of this. Um, so in the title of your book, you mentioned, you know, the conversations we aren't having. And I kind of like, I don't know if it's an easy question to just like nutshell up for us, but like, what are some of these conversations that need to be had more? I know it's a massive topic um, to try and do justice to and like, you know, a measly little podcast episode right at the end. But is there anything that we haven't already covered off that you feel is really important to mention? Well, I think... um Okay. So a weird pattern that we noticed in the the world of people who talked about sex, like five, six years ago, before it really like 
before we realized it was everybody, was that the sex people were all really into serial killers. I promise <laughs> this makes sense in a minute. Um, and we talked about why, and we said that when you get comfortable talking about sex, you become a lot more comfortable talking about like horrible things or gross things or, un, you know, things that other people think they don't want to talk about or they shouldn't talk about. And so I feel like the fact that we, as a society, especially I live in the U S and so, you know, we hate talking about sex here. <laughs> I think the more we listen to those, that messaging that says you can't talk about sex or, you know, you shouldn't talk about your mental illness because that's private and it'll scare people and whatever. It'll just build up that, you know, I always say that's the monster, right? The intersection of those two conversations that you're not supposed to have Mm. builds up into this big thing. So get comfortable talking about uncomfortable things because honestly it's the refusal to talk about them that makes them more and more uncomfortable Mm. yeah so good wow the serial killer thing yeah that was left left a field that's um yeah yeah that's cool (laughs) yeah it was it was really weird to realize that it was like all of us and we all thought it was like this weird thing that only we did but yeah Wow. Once you get used to talking about some weird stuff, like a lot less stuff squicks you out. Yeah, it makes sense. Totally makes sense. Hey, me again. If you'd like to support the potty and you've already given it five stars on whatever platform you're listening on, I want to mention that you can also buy some dope merch from my website and get yourself a labia lounge tote, tea, togs. Yep. You heard that right. I even have labia lounge babies or a cute fanny pack if that'd blow your hair back. Or if fashion isn't your passion, you can donate to my buy me a coffee donation page, which I actually call buy me a sweet chai latte because I'll be the first to admit I'm a bit of a Melbourne cafe tosser like that. And yes, that is my coffee order. Um, So you can do a once off donation or an ongoing membership and sponsor me for as little as three fat ones a month. Every bit helps because it's not cheap to put out a sweet podcast into the world every week out of my own pocket. So I will be undyingly grateful if you support me financially in this way. And if you like, I'll even give you a mental BJ with my mind from the lounge itself, which is at this early stage in double L history, just the spare bedroom at my house. (laughs) Anyway, I'll pop the links in the show notes later. My jingle features the words, don't panic, you're not broken. And I know that's like you're a big advocate of that um, as well. And I like to give guests a chance to reassure us all about something that might be causing us to feel alone or like we're not normal or like we're broken. So do you have any parting words to leave listeners with? Oh, my goodness. So I think a lot of us have this idea that there's this way to be that is happy and healthy and that like other people know it, but, but we don't know it and we've never felt it and we don't know what that is. And I think the thing to remember is that even the people who do seem happy and healthy and well-adjusted and all the things, they have their own thing that's hurting or that's weird or whatever. So remember that you only see... Hmm, Think of it like a theater. You see the crazy, hectic backstage of your own experience and you Mm. see the beautiful pulled together show of everybody else's, right? But if you could see their backstage, 
you would understand that it's just as crazy and hectic as yours. Mm. So just remember, don't compare your backstage to somebody else's fully realized show. Yeah, totally. Yeah, great. Love that. It's so much harder these days with social media and people kind of putting that facade out into the world and that's like all we're seeing. Um, yeah, it's it's like I, I have this like tendency, which I feel like most people do have is like, you know, just feeling like I haven't figured it out yet. And maybe I just, there's like an answer that I haven't discovered, but if I could figure that out, then I could, I'd have the key to like, you know, defeating mental illness once and for all. And if I was just doing enough or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, uh, I know that's toxic. I know that's unhelpful. It's like not really um, paying attention to all of the nuances of it. But it's, you know, it's frustrating sometimes when you're just like, oh, if only I could just figure this out. You know, I think maybe because I'm so obsessed with, like I really nerd out on personal development and like psychology and trauma and how all of this works, like how my head works, how my mood works, how my hormones work. And I'm always kind of like, surely, surely after all of these years of trying and experimenting and researching, like I would fucking sort this out by now. But yeah, I guess my thing that I have to keep reminding myself is just like, hey, chill (laughs) just accept accept where you're at at the moment and maybe just figure out how to navigate that and manage it better without like feeling the need to eradicate all of the darkness out of your life and fix it you know like we don't really need to be fixed necessarily and everyone's got shit you know I feel like a huge I think you'd agree like a huge thing that might help remedy the situation or at least ease the kind of damage that it does is like if all of us were just talking about it more openly and checking in all the time and being like yo how's your fucking head like where's your mental health at you know anything I can do to support like if it was just normal everyday talk um you know that would just like oh I feel like that would be so powerful and mean that it didn't affect us so viciously sometimes, you know, just by shining a light on it and having everyone in it together and everyone acknowledging, yeah, I can feel like that sometimes too, you know? Yeah. And you know what? So here's the thing. I moved across the country last year and I'm still sorting out doctors and I, I'm seeing a psychiatrist for the first time in May and like for the first time since I moved and all of that. Like basically there's, and, and my mother passed away and like all of this has gone on. There is no reason I shouldn't be the worst mess of my life right now, except that I moved from somewhere where I was almost completely isolated and, you know, didn't see friends and didn't have much family there and really only saw my partner. I moved across the country to a place where um, my aunts and uncles and my cousins and and my stepfather and all these people are here Mm. and they love me and they talk about this stuff with me. And consequently I'm doing better than I've done Mm. in years. And it's really, it's the keeping it all in and the thinking you have to fight it on your own and that nobody wants to hear or nobody wants to support you. That I think is what's killing us possibly more than the actual illnesses we have. It's the trying to conquer it all by ourselves because there are people around and they will help you 
like even just, even if it's just like hanging out with you, watching some TV, it's good for your soul to have Mm. people. And a year ago, I would have told you that's nonsense. And I love being alone, but (laughs) no. Yeah. Mm, A hundred percent agree. It just, it just sort of lightens the load a little bit for us and makes us feel less alone. Like I've moved to a pretty isolated place, um, almost a year ago now. And like, I've definitely noticed, um, yeah, I've had some very, very dark months, um, sort of struggling with that. And I think a big part of it, it's the, it's the adjustment period and the transition, but also like, um, yeah, the isolation. And sometimes I send like little voice memos back and forth with my friends um, a lot because, you know, time difference makes it tricky to have um, phone calls sometimes. And little voice memos are like my absolute fucking savior. I honestly, I'll be on the voices pretty much every day. And even sometimes if my friends aren't, you know, like available to respond, or I know that they're away for the weekend out of reception or whatever, I still send them because it's almost like taking a journal entry. It's like, it gives me comfort to be talking to them, even if it's through a little voice memo, because I know that at some point they're going to listen to it and that connects us and they're there, you know, it just feels less lonely and more like you can spread some of the heaviness that you might be feeling to a few other people who are able to like help you hold that. Um, Connections, everything. Yeah, totally agree. Mm. Oh, amazing. So beautiful. I would love to do a follow-up episode in the future with you. I just, um, yeah, I feel like we could talk about so much more and go even deeper into this. It's such an important topic. And yeah, I I feel like people will get a lot of value out of this and hopefully feel validated, you know, in their experience. So really appreciate you coming on the potty today, Joellen. Thank you so much for having me. Mm. All right. Well, I will leave it there and... Yeah. Thank you again. I'll speak to you soon. And that's it, darling hearts. Thank you for stopping by the Labia Lounge. Your bum groove in the couch will be right where you left it, just waiting for you to sink back in for some more double L action next time. And in the meantime, if you'd be a dear and subscribe, share this episode or leave a review on iTunes, then you can pat yourself on the snatch because that, my dear, is a downright act of sex positive feminist activism. And you'd be supporting my vision to educate, empower, demystify, and destigmatize with this here podcast. Also, I'm always open to feedback, topic ideas that you'd love to hear covered, or guest suggestions. So feel free to get in touch via my website at freyograph.com or say hey over on Insta. My handle is Freya underscore graph underscore YMT and I seriously hope you're following me on there because damn, we have fun. We have fun. Anyway, later labial legends. I'll see you next time.